Welcome to the next Breakfast with Jesus episode, which is uh, continuing the journey through Ezekiel. And uh, today I want to look at Ezekiel 12 and 12, 13 and 14. I want to position this uh, in response to a very common conception of the Christian life that I read, hear and see regularly from pulpits in books. And that is the use of idolatry as a metaphor, and possibly not even a metaphor, for sin in the Christian life. Very, very frequently I've heard sermons and I know there are books on the topic as well, but certainly I've heard sermons, well-intentioned perhaps, that look at idols in our heart and exhort the audience to examine their hearts, to find the idols in their hearts, to remove these idols. The conception lying behind this is that these idols are rivals for the love of God. Examples of what are very typically seen as idols would be uh, generally possessions, uh, wealth, uh, cars, but I've unfortunately definitely heard it from the pulpit to go further. It can be any love you have that interferes with your love for God. For instance, uh, your family, your children, they could be idols. Now, um, I've always been very uneasy about this. I mean, it's got a conception of sanctification behind it that's very introspective and, and very um, negative, really. I think the effect of it on the audience is almost invariably nervous introspection. I. It can, if taken seriously, go a whole, whole, whole lot further. And people can you know, leave jobs, sell houses, go into communal living, etc. Now, um, I, don't, I don't want to major on this, although it probably, I think, um, merits a, a, deeper, a deeper dive. Um, I'll, I'll just say this much. Um, I, it, it, the New Testament almost never does the same thing. The New Testament almost never cites idolatry as a metaphor for sins. Sins of competition in the love for God. If you do a concordant search of the use of idol, idolatry or idols in the New Testament, you will find that in almost every case, it is quite literal. It's actually to do with food sacrifice to idols or something like that. Uh, there's one possibility in Colossians, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, incidental and certainly not central. So if nothing else, it should give us a bit of pause to think, well, hang on, if the New Testament writers weren't freely using idolatry as a metaphor for sin in the Christian life, why should we do it? Now, of course, um, people who give these sermons or people who talk this way or think this way 
um, probably because there's a paucity of mentions in the New Testament, we'll dive into the Old Testament. And of course, the Old Testament is rife with the sin of idolatry, absolutely rife with it. Um, it's clearly central there. And so uh, modern interpreters anachronistically pile a Christian life back onto the Old Testament instances of idolatry, idol worship, and judgment against idolatry and idol worship. And, and what that does is it gives unfortunately, a great deal of ammunition to uh, drive home the introspection and anxiety of the modern listener. Um, I think it's all, I think that's all distorted and somewhat sinister because I don't think it's the gospel. Uh, I've just explained, well, if the New Testament doesn't do it, why should we be doing it? That begs the question of how the New Testament does look at the Christian life, and I won't go into that now. What I want to do, continue to do um, now is actually to look at the Old Testament and idolatry. And it's an absolutely central theme in these early chapters of Ezekiel. So it's a good place to start. You know, what's actually going on there? That's what this little talk's about. So the situation, just to remind us all, um, very importantly to read the first half of Ezekiel, you've got to get this idea of an interregnum um, between uh, the first exile and the second exile. It's about a decade-long period between uh, the first exile was a partial exile of Jehoiakim and a few thousand of his upper-class cohorts to Babylon. And then in that interim period, uh, back in Jerusalem, the puppet king Zedekiah ruled and it was he who actually rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He seemed to be an idiot. I mean, but he, he was completely, um, I think, intoxicated by the opportunity you know, that this governorship gave him to grab power for himself. And it was him whom Nebuchadnezzar finally just was um, completely frustrated with and that precipitated the 586 um, destruction of Jerusalem, and, and that was the real exile. It was, it was an obliteration. So that was what was happening at, at face value. And Ezekiel was, as we said, in Babylon, where he went probably as a late teenager, in Babylon, and he had a prophecy there to the people in Babylon who probably were in some sort of halfway house between, well, are we really exiled or could we hope to get back there? So um, uh, they were these. This audience, the rhetorical situation Ezekiel faced, was very, very human, which is a denial of reality. Um, I used to come across this in strategy. I won't mention examples, but where companies were faced with declining revenues, faced with uh, bad business indicators, and there was just a natural human psychology to deny it uh, to yourself and your stakeholders. Minimize it, um, cover the cracks over, change the measurements, do something, but don't let these signs tell you about the impending doom because that's too challenging to the status quo and too scary. So it's a very human thing, and in a way, the 
elders in Babylon were just like a, you know, a modern group of executives who won't actually see the writing on the wall. Um, there's a very, it's a great, a great verse that captures this in chapter 12, verse 22, when they're saying uh, about, about the prophecies of doom, probably Jeremiah's, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. You know, it's been a long time, God's not doing anything, Jesus isn't coming back. Uh, this was their version of the same thing. It's just like, so perhaps there is, perhaps these prophecies were wrong. And um, uh, they, these, they were thus falsely uh, consoling the people. This was the um, peace, peace where there is no peace, which um, I think is, uh, it, it, it's, Ezekiel 13 verse 10, I think, I think Jeremiah says the same thing. That's what they were saying. They, they were saying peace, but actually there was no peace. And the reason there was no peace was that in the spiritual diagnosis of Ezekiel, God was behind this. And there was a um, devastating final cleansing going to go on for, for Israel. And uh, of course, chapter 12 happens after chapter 11, which is chapter 11 is really worthwhile looking at, which is when the glory of the Lord had finally lifted off and departed. It was reversing the entrance and participation of God um, in the Exodus to, to the tabernacle. When the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, it, the glory of the Lord departed in chapter 11. So if the glory of the Lord has departed, then... Things are fatal. That's, that's what Ezekiel understood. We get vignettes of what was actually happening, and I've mentioned before. It's really important to view it as a form of syncretism. If you think of it as outright idolatry, in other words, they'd completely abandoned Yahweh and were now worshipping Baal or Molech or whatever, that you're wrong. It, it's much more... That, that, that kind of behaviour is very easy to stereotype and criticise you could say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Syncretism is a different matter. Syncretism is this merging of the old and the new, the merging of a pagan worldview with this um, pure uh, vision from God of, of his worldview. Uh, we get these vignettes. Uh, that I just love the one in chapter 13, halfway through about verse 17, where women were sewing magic bands. We don't really know what was going on, but clearly it was some kind of uh, witchcraft going on, seances, whatever, and they were doing it in the hunt for souls. Uh, so there had been this opening up of temple worship to um, magic, superstition, um, strange practices, which were... Um, appealing um, in, in some kind of uh, witchcraft, demonic way. Uh, but the, underneath it all, the, the problem that was going on was the co-location of these pagan practices uh, with the Jewish mind. And, and clearly it seemed to be creeping into the Babylonian exiles as well, the same syncretism. Now, idolatry idolatry was the, the symbol that sits on top of all of that world. Um, now, idolatry 
should not be seen if you take if you take the view I began by characterising as the way modern Christian preachers and teachers can look at idolatry as a kind of rivalry between God and and others, I mean, you, at face value it looks like that, but it's deeper than that. It's actually a worldview. It's a mental model, not just a matter of, of competing rituals. And, and you can see that it's a worldview because in chapter 14, of Ezekiel, what God starts to complain about through the, through the mouth of Ezekiel is that they've taken idols into their hearts. So there had been a corruption of the mind, a corruption of the soul. And what God's desire was, again from the same chapter, was to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel. And those hearts are, quote, estranged from me by idols. So this is penetrating. Uh, because it does give us God's agenda, which is to win the mind of mankind, to win the mind. And by my, I'm viewing mind in the full, full sense of rational, emotional, intuitive, uh, because all of our affections come from that. So what we're looking at here with idolatry is not some matter of uh, rivalry. It's actually a battle for the mind of mankind. And that's the future of the religious imagination on the planet. Um, in Bulkakov's terms, which I quoted last time, which I love, it's a battle over the, what is the nature of the relation between God and the world and a relationship between God and humanity. So what is this idolatrous worldview that they were imbibing and allowing to corrupt their minds. Well, we've been really well educated in that in Gospel Conversations by both Ian Proven and John Walton. And I really, really suggest uh, uh, from time to time going back to particularly look at Ian's early talks on um, the Old Testament Reloaded when in, in the first couple of talks he talks about the ancient Near Eastern worldview and their view of God and creation. It's very illuminating and encouraging to look at that again. Encouraging because it just makes clear the foundational paradigmatic uh, shift in perspective that Moses and the Spirit gave and the prophets gave. Well, just to summarize, um, the ancient Near Eastern cosmology essentially saw human beings as slaves pawns in the God game and saw the gods as fundamentally not just disinterested but competing, warring bureaucrats, middle managers of the universe. And, and so that was the cosmology, that is their picture of the reality that was going on. And, and what humans did in order to ingratiate themselves with the gods was to offer sacrifices. So idolatry became the medium for that world. So idolatry is the religious reflex in the face of this ancient Near Eastern cosmology. The real issue is the cosmology and the mindset underneath it. The religious rituals just sit on top of that mindset. And a good word to describe that mindset is superstitious. It's a good word because we get what it means, but we also can begin to say, well, hang on, perhaps we're a bit superstitious today. As I can, my dear friend Mark Strom has often said to me, Christians are very superstitious.
what does that mean? It means that if, if my cosmology is humanity is uh, subordinate to the gods, a slave of the gods, um, very peripheral to the gods' interests, then what we've got to do is find favour from the gods and hence the system of idolatry, worshipping the idols. And we're using these rituals as good luck charms to get us through life. Now that pervasive view, which once you express it that way, I mean, if you were to talk to me about idolatry in Satania, you ever attempted by idolatry? The answer is no, I'm not in the least. But if you were to describe to me the superstitious mindset, the idea that I'm sort of on the edges of God's interests and got to win him over, um, well, that's a lot closer to home. That mindset I can get. And I actually believe paganism is nothing more than the expression of the natural mindset that's not cleansed by revelation. Now, there's very strong evidence of this superstitious mindset in the books of Samuel and Kings, by the way, and really interesting to view those books through the, through the filter of superstition. I mean, when I look at Saul as an example, he's really superstitious. To me, really superstitious. As were other gods, it's, uh, sorry, other, other kings. I mean, a really good example, if you want to look at it, clearest example of someone who was not superstitious was King David. Now, we all have problems with David because he's said to be a man after God's own heart, and yet we know he was had feet of clay without going into, in, bothering to go into that now. So what, in what way was he after God's own heart? Well, the best example of this, or a very good example of this, is in 2 Samuel 15, which was a really low point in David's life because his own son had evicted him um, and revolted against him, Absalom. And he was departing from Jerusalem. He was getting evicted from Jerusalem. And the priests, Sadok and co, were bringing the ark, bringing the ark with them. And David commanded them to take the ark back to Jerusalem with words along the lines of, look, it may be that God is for me. It may be that God is not for me. We'll find that out. But the ark goes back to Jerusalem. Incredibly important. His view was God's purposes are what are important, not mine. And I'm not going to use the ark as a good luck charm. Now you can contrast that to 1 Samuel chapter 3 where they did use the ark as a good luck charm. So this religious mindset of good luck charms, which equals superstition, from the very beginning you can see it's a battle for the Jewish mind to get out of it. So let's look at this superstitious mindset now and let's critique it from the vantage point of the revelation of God in Genesis, creation ex nihilo, the, the great revelation, which we know particularly, again, recommend, listen to Ian Proven, was a paradigm shift in all religion. This uh, ancient Near Eastern pagan view of the relationship between God and the world was an ironic blend of egocentricity and civility. Apparent opposites. Now, it was servile, obviously, because humanity was incidental to the gods. We were on the edges of reality. 
we, we're an afterthought in creation. We're, we're, we're not central to it. It's not ours. And as such, we're a slave class. So that's a really servile view, a really servile view of humanity. But it's egocentric because the real game in town was to get through life successfully. It's all about me. Um, me being a nation or a tribe or an individual, I've just got to navigate through this. The, the, the real goal is, is, is me being successful and the crops growing and being fertile and somehow or other in a world that's hostile, if I can sort of navigate my way through this maze of indifference of the gods, I might get somewhere. So in, in a really funny way, they needed the gods as a means to their ends. They wanted to use the gods to get them through. And vital behind this, they had no idea what on earth were the ends or the goals of the gods. That was totally vacant space in the ancient Near Eastern cosmology. It wasn't inquired about or expected. So in that blankness, they just needed to manipulate and coerce because the only goals and objectives are mine to live a successful life. So the view of the gods or God here is essentially hostile. Uh, if not hostile, indifferent, and certainly inscrutable. The gods were arbitrary, they were capricious, and their endeavours were whims that we can't read. Now out of that dynamic, if you think of that as the ontology, what kind of religion emerges, the religious dynamic is, um, as I've said, civility, very low view of humanity, uh, but a focus on, insofar as religion's there, it's there to help me get, be successful in life. And, and that irony was fed from a common well, which is the utter absence of any intent in the God, gods and, and any knowledge or even knowability of that intent. So thus humans were irrelevant on the sidelines of the cosmic agendas. Now that's the idolatrous mindset. Scrape it back and what you are seeing is a existential threat to the picture that Genesis gives us that we are made in the image of God and that creation is ours as the gift of God. That's what was in play here. Well, let that view of idolatry we can take into the modern world. Um, I've just listened to a wonderful talk by Doru Kostash to a group of scientists on the alienation, the psychological alienation and feeling of smallness that comes from the you know post 17th century view of an infinite universe. It's big, we're small. Well, uh, that feeling of cosmic irrelevance and smallness is a very modern, you know, quote unquote scientific mindset that's actually just a corollary of the sense of smallness that the ancient Near Eastern pagan world had. Um, and I think uh, modern religion and a lot of Christianity is a God on my side religion. We, we don't have to go very far today to see that erupting in modern American evangelicalism. Um, but it, it, it's everywhere else. It's in colonialism. It's in a lot of Christianity that, that the real, it's, it, and it's personal. You know, we think, so many people think, you know, my goal in life is success and I'm, 
I'm actually using God for my success. Not that people would actually say that, rather than David's attitude, which is my success, it's neither here nor there. It's God's success that matters. He's got a project, he's got ends. Even though I'm the king, I'm the means to that ends. And that was true. That wasn't civility, that was humility. And they're very different things. So what Israel was doing here in Ezekiel, in Babylon, um, and what Israel had been doing uh, relentlessly, incurably, for decades and centuries was they were playing the ancient Near Eastern game. Uh, so their syncretic participation in idolatry was really a pollution and a surrender of the worldview or ontology that Moses had given them. They, they might have only accommodated portions of the pagan religion, not the whole lot, but what they had full-scale accommodated was the pagan conception about God, the gods, and the cosmos, and the low view of humanity. And this blinded them to understanding God's true character. Because what the story that Moses began, the story that flourished, the story that burst into flower in Jesus Christ is we are the center of God's attention. We are as God's and the center of his love and attention. We're not peripheral. We're not on the edges. Um, we are the priests of God. We're not a slave class. Um, we are actually in his image and his intention, far from him having intentions to which we are irrelevant, is a symbiosis between God and creation, between God and humanity, mediated by human beings. Well, I think uh, that tour through, just to summarize, this misuse of idolatry by modern preachers to make it a matter of rivalries and affections and really, you know, just an excuse to stereotype and criticize various forms of behavior and And I think, you know, make people introspective. I began by critiquing that. Then back and saying, well, let's look at idolatry in the Old Testament using this situation in Ezekiel, which absolutely, absolutely um, focuses on idolatry. But what I've spent my time doing here, and this came out of, you know, some wondrous meandering conversations Anne and I had, was scraping back behind the religious idolatry into the mindset, into the mindset that was implied in the ancient Near Eastern cosmology and how that mindset was hostile to this breathtaking revelation of the love of God, the love of God that climaxed in Christ and was promised and the foundations were laid in Moses's and Abraham's great revelations. So, um, yeah, trust these, uh, these words bless you. Um, I do want to um, actually, next time around, give a talk on 
I actually want to build on this idea um, and do it by taking you on a tour of one of the great chapters of world literature, uh, the Grand Inquisitor, uh, Dostoevsky's chapter from the brothers Karamazov.